The landscape of North America's networks is rapidly evolving. New technologies like 5G carry a lot of promise to redefine the way we do business, learn, and connect with one another. But we're not there just yet. From the budget to build, software to secure, and Spectrum to support all use cases regardless of locale, a lot needs to happen before everyone can tap into its fullest potential. Tune in to Nokia today, where we discuss how policymakers, enterprises, and industry leaders are working together to bring today's network capabilities to scale for the future. Hello, everyone, and welcome into Nokia Today. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the show. Now, today we're taking a look at rural broadband for America, both today and into the future. Now, this is a topic that has been important for a long time, but a spotlight has really been shined on it as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And here to guide our conversation and introduce our expert guest today is Brian Hendricks, Vice President of Policy and Government Relations for Nokia Americas. Brian, thanks for joining us today. Let me hand things off to you to uh, to take it away. Thanks, Tyler. Through the experience of the, the COVID pandemic, we've learned a lot. We've learned that it's no longer just about connectivity. It's also about vulnerability. Unserved and underserved households are at best economically vulnerable, but at worst, they lack access to life-enhancing and potentially life-saving services. Now, we've talked about this several times on the podcast recently, including when we hosted Edward Smith and Blair Levin recently to talk about the National Urban League's reimagination of the National Broadband Plan. But we've always talked about it at a high level for policy. But today, we're going to take a much more focused look at the scope and the impact of the digital divide. Rural broadband is vital to getting the U.S. economy and our society going again. Now, our industry has a major responsibility to bring forward the technologies and the deployment strategies that are going to help us close the divide and, more importantly, ensure that it doesn't become an even larger issue as we see increased digitalization of business activities and, and other activities of daily life. Simply put, having a broadband connection is no longer a convenience. It's a total necessity. We're very excited to have Shirley Bloomfield with us today to talk about rural America broadband for today and tomorrow. Shirley's the chief executive officer of NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association. Shirley has 30 years of experience representing the country's smallest independent telecom operators. She is by every possible definition an expert on the role of federal communications policies in sustaining the vitality of rural and remote communities and the benefits of rural broadband networks and what they bring to the national economy. Welcome in, Shirley. Thanks so much, Brian. It's a delight to be here with you today. Now, before we get into today's topic, it it might be really helpful for our listeners if you can give us a brief introduction to NTCA, its members, and how what they do is so essential to helping America. Well, I appreciate that, um, Brian, because I do think that folks have this, um, you know, trying to paint this picture can get a little complicated. But just the short version is we've got about 850 community-based providers across the country. These are folks that are either cooperatives that rose out of communities where folks banded together to provide their own communication service, or they're family-owned, community-based, local providers that years ago started off as being the local phone company. And um, given the important role they play in their community, being the provider and the carrier of last resort, they really quickly morphed to delivering broadband and other essential services across the small towns and rural 
portions of our country that they serve. So picture this. Um, we cover folks in about 45 states. They're about 35% of the landmass of this country is our service territory, but only about 7% of the population. So definitely, definitely rural. And what we do every day is we wake up and we think about how we can help advance policies that will close the digital divide by connecting more people and more businesses in rural America to fast, affordable, reliable internet service over what we think is critical future-proof networks. So, you know, I think we all recognize, and you teed this up beautifully, Brian, that, you know, internet powers the economy and it connects us to all of these things that are truly essential services, whether we're talking about employment, whether we're talking about public safety, whether we're talking about healthcare, and, you know, certainly connecting to our family and friends, which has probably been more important over the last year than ever before. So again, we, we think a lot about this. And I go back to, you know, when you talk about why is it important, um, years ago, we used to talk about the fact that the more people connected to the phone network, the more valuable the phone network was for everybody, um, connecting businesses across across the country, across the world. Broadband just simply accelerates that. So, um, so again, that's kind of a, a quick snapshot of who we are and, and, and why we care so deeply about these issues. Well, thanks for that. But we've seen uh, uh, the world kind of turned upside down, I think is, is fair to say. Um, with the pandemic, it's changed fundamentally the way we're, we're doing everything, our jobs, uh, the way our children are learning. Uh, it's placed a lot of, of pressure on, on networks, uh, stress testing them in, in a way we had never planned to stress test them. So uh, let's talk for a minute about what it's been like out there for the rural telecom operator with everybody working at home and using the networks for school, putting more of that traffic onto the networks. How are the networks doing? And what are you hearing from your members? So um, there's a new term in the industry, which took me a little bit to catch up on, which is WFH. And, um, you know, given all the acronyms we use these days, I finally had to go to my carriers. I was like, what is that? And it's work from home because what um, even in rural America, you know, we have this picture of downtown Washington, D.C. or New York City or Boston and people emptying out those big office spaces. Well, folks in rural America also um, started working from home and conducting their businesses online. And um, we also found a lot of folks from urban areas were going out to the rural areas. So we saw a huge influx in the network. Um, you know, on average, when we look at kind of uh, our companies across the country, they shared that their network usage is up about 40%. Um, and what we used to see is we used to see peaks and valleys in terms of network usage. What we've seen over the course of the last year has been a constant stream. So staying at that higher peak level pretty much all day long. It's not just people coming home from work at six o'clock and um, streaming or watching a movie or, or gaming. It is now constant. So the, the good news has been that the networks have held up beautifully. I attribute that in great part to the fact that um, folks, you know, my carriers have really built um, – future-proof networks, 70% uh, of their customer base has access to fiber to the home. So that has really helped to manage that, that traffic flow. But the other thing that I, I think has been really interesting has been watching how they've used it. So we, we've basically taken a look and, you know, you've got 40% of, of Americans nationwide who've been teleworking, 47% uh, of adults using telemedicine. 
in our markets, um, we, we have seen those numbers pretty much correlate. And uh, we, for example, also run a medical trust. We've seen the use of our teledoc program go up about 30%. So again, even in rural America, uh, folks were taking the opportunity to say, you know what, I don't need to go to the doctor for this. I can actually do a, a telemedicine visit. Um, and I and I do think, you know, as we've been talking to our carriers, um, the other thing that I think has been a really interesting trend has been um, the number of folks who are needing that upload speed, that need for symmetry, that we think so much traditionally about networks needing to download quickly. And what we found is that that upstream usage has also increased. I, I was just with a co-op of ours down in South Carolina recently, and they were telling me that their upstream usage is up 81% this year. That's significant, um, you know, and I think we need to be mindful of that as we think about how these networks can be used. So, you know, the other thing that I, I would simply share is that, um, you know, there's just painting the picture of, of rural America. There's, there's really what I consider to be a rural-rural divide. People like to talk a lot about a digital divide and, you know, one America with a robust network and, um, you know, in urban areas and, and rural kind of being with strings and tin cans. And in all honesty, you know, again, as I mentioned, 70% of our customer base has access to fiber. It's, it's again, that um, community-based providers who actually live and work in these areas have really put some of that investment in. And I will say that investment held up beautifully and uh, certainly gives us something to build on as we go forward. Well, I, I am not the least bit surprised by that, but I am deeply pleased to hear you say it. Um, I think, you know, for our listeners' benefit, I first met Shirley when I was a, uh, a senior staffer in Congress. And so I certainly have a, a front, had a front row seat to the misperceptions and misconceptions about the capability of uh, some of the rural telecom providers, which is, I promise you, a question, Shirley, I want to return to again uh, later in the discussion. But I want to pull on a thread that we you, you teased a little bit in your comments around health. Uh, the need in rural America is, is uh, in many cases, greater. According to the CDC, up to 46 million Americans live in rural areas. And we know that they're more likely to die from heart disease, unintentional injury, stroke, and, and other causes than Americans that live in urban areas. We also know that about 60% of designated healthcare professional shortage areas are rural. So broadband, we think, can have a real impact in providing telehealth and other remote services. But there's a lot of myths out there, as we noted, about rural broadband providers that'll, uh, that we will get into a little bit later. But one is that their networks are just simply not capable of doing sophisticated things like telehealth. Uh, you mentioned it, but you have a little more that you can say on that topic about uh, what what's involved in telehealth beyond even just the, the Zoom visit with your doctor and, and the capability of your members' networks to support some of the aspirational things that we're talking about with, with future healthcare. Absolutely. And I will say, Brian, that one of the applications, when we talk about like all of the different applications of Internet of Things, what you can do with these networks, because um, we work to build smart rural communities and it's using those networks. Telemedicine is probably one of the areas that I am the most bullish about and I think has the most opportunity and application in these rural markets, in part because we have no real appreciation for the fact that when you are going to see 
um, a specialist in a, in a rural community, it often means um, that you are driving two, three, four hours to get to that specialist. This isn't the, the case where you just, you know, get in your car and, you know, 10 minutes later, you're where you need to be. So, and again, we get to see this because we also provide healthcare. So watching how um, not only is access to specialty care, to your point, some unique healthcare needs for rural Americans, but you also just, all you have to do is, is look at the statistics and see how many rural clinics and rural hospitals have shut down over the course of the last decade. And it's significant. So when you talk about the access to care, it becomes even more important. But the thing that I find really exciting about the work that my carriers are doing is, again, because they are in the community, their, their parents are aging in place there, their kids are going to school there, they, they go to church with the people in the community, they feel this real sense of obligation to fill that void. And so Many of the very early telemedicine applications that we had seen from our member companies was because there was a need. I literally had um, folks starting heart monitoring programs using some pretty basic um, internet tools because one general manager of a telephone company was tired of taking his mother every week to the doctor to have her heart monitored. So he was like, ah, you know, hey, revelation, I've got a broadband network. Let's let's figure out what we can we can do to connect. So seeing those gaps kind of filled in has been really exciting. Now I will say COVID has added a whole layer onto that. So, you know, watching the um, companies work with their communities, work with their local health clinics has been really critical. We've seen a number of our companies really step up and um, go into action very quickly to help set up COVID testing centers and vaccination sites where they have literally worked with their local health clinics to provide the connectivity that allows the exchange of records back and forth, that allows the uploads of um, the data that is critical in these cases, the medical records. Um, so, so, you know, that has been exciting to see. And, you know, I, I throw out an example, you know, we've got uh, Paul Bunyan uh, Cooperative up in Bemidji, uh, Minnesota, that connected their entire healthcare system so that uh, pregnant women in, in the rural areas, which are extremely remote in northern Minnesota, can continue seeing their doctor during the pandemic at a time where they didn't want to be walking into a, a, a medical facility. So I, I think all of that's going to be important. And I think we as a country don't go backwards on this. I think that once people have seen the ability to use telemedicine, once Congress loosens some of those restrictions on licensing across state boundaries, I remain extremely hopeful that we've learned a lot and we and we won't go backwards in that regard. We will find ways to make this easier. The other challenge I will note is even over at the FCC, there is a rural health care program um, because it's not just the networks, but it is about the healthcare provider or the clinic or the hospital having the tools they need to do the telemedicine portion. And, and what I find is uh, rural hospitals and clinics and practitioners need help figuring out how to access some of these grant programs. Because as always, when these programs roll out, the recipients are typically those who know how to get grants. Um, that's not always the sweet spot for rural communities. So I remain hopeful that we can figure out more ways to um, also help those on the user side uh, to to get the tools they need to make telemedicine work. Well, that's that's fantastic. I, I we agree with you, by the way. Um, as technologists at Nokia, our 
you know, our position is we, we build and invent and uh, offer solutions across all the different ways that we can provision services. And one of the things that we've been talking a lot about is the next evolution um, in, in healthcare in, to include remote diagnostic medicine. Uh, you mentioned rural communities. There's, there's also an, an enormous need on the, on the VA side of things where uh, you have a lot of veterans in this country who are non-ambulatory, who may live hundreds of miles away from their serving VA hospital. So, you know, stimulating some of the the application development, the peripherals, and other things that are going to allow us to do real-time, in-field, in-home diagnostic medicine and use the networks to communicate back to health centers is something that we're very interested in. So, um, the connectivity, as we know, just continues to get more and more essential. And I admire Nokia for the the work and the innovation you all are doing in that area. And um, I think there could be some interesting ways we might find to work together in that. And just sharing very quickly, we've also, um, obviously, rural America actually has the vast majority of American vets um, live in yes. these communities. And, you know, they're, they're not high income in general, and they are remote. So just kind of throwing out one of the things we started a few years ago is a program called the Virtual Living Room. And what we've done through our foundation is given grants to local um, communities, American Legion halls, um, different entities like that, where we have literally created a safe space within the community um, where our telephone provider, our broadband provider, is providing a gig service to whatever that facility might be. They've created a safe space, um, private space and uh, free free access, and it is open for vets in those communities to be able to go to connect to their state VA centers. And it's been a very exciting initiative. We've got about three of them up and running now, hopefully a fourth coming online soon. And it's those kind of pieces to figure out how do you connect all the dots and how do you make the best use of this technology? That is, that's amazing to hear. And, you know, we could probably talk for the for the balance of our time on on this topic, and perhaps we will do a follow up uh, on it. But I want to shift your attention, if we could, to uh, the current state of broadband politics. Uh, and in, in some ways, it's, it's sort of unfortunate that broadband has become a political issue. Um, in this instance, I'm referring to the massive amount of attention that is now being uh, placed by the FCC, by the Department of Commerce, by Congress, by President Biden on closing the divide. And there are a number of proposals, as you've seen uh, out there, whether that's going to be part of a, a major infrastructure bill or whether it will move to standalone. But we're talking about substantial sums of money uh, that could potentially be uh, put in, in play here. And so I want to spend a couple minutes talking with you about that, uh, if we could. Uh, the reality is that the business case for deploying networks uh, in rural places isn't impossible, as we have seen and as you have told us, but it is more difficult. So as we think about the, the support that government is considering and that has provided and that we know will be critical to getting and keeping connectivity into these communities, I want to learn a little bit, if I could, about the views that your members have. Uh, I'll tell you very briefly, Nokia has expressed to to Congress that it isn't just about the size of the check at this point. It's about the need to also simultaneously review the ways that we are allocating the money. That means maybe expanding eligibility for 
for technologies or approaches and business partners. Uh, but generally, just making sure that we're taking a look at these these uh, programs to make sure that we get the maximum amount of value uh, that we can. Because we have spent, in fairness, a lot of money over the last five to 10 years on this issue. And it remains pervasive because it's hard. But we also want to make sure that with this level of focus and attention, that, that we're, we're doing it right. So can you talk a little bit about what your members' thoughts are on any changes? What, how about the existing funding mechanisms like the, the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, the Connect America Fund? How are they working for your members? And if they could, what might they change about those programs? So very timely, given all of the uh, discussion about all of these things on the table, Brian. Um, first, let me stop and, and paint the picture. So here I am in the Washington, D.C. area. By best estimations, there are a couple of thousand subscribers per mile of telecommunications infrastructure here. Very high density, um, you know, ability to average the cost of that network among all of those people. My companies serve on average seven consumers per mile of wire, and that's pretty good for some places. I've got Montana where, you know, I've got places where there's less than one person per mile. The difference is that infrastructure cost does not change. The cost is the same. It's just that you've got a lot fewer people you are spreading that cost among. So to that point, I would say, yeah, you know what? It's going to take all tools in the toolkit to, to get the job done. But I will say um, we've been thrilled to see how much investment has been made in broadband recently. You know, I look at things like the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program, which has really stepped in to help those folks who are financially hurting during this challenging time. There's been increased investment in the USDA Reconnect Program, which is very critical to my folks because... Um, our U.S. happens to be their their main banker for the most part. We've also seen a lot of funding for tribal and, and rural broadband deployment included in um, the government funding bill that passed last year and a lot of efforts that have gone back to the states. But I, I the one thing I worry about with some of these programs and all of the initiatives coming out in Congress is everybody gets very excited about creating their own program. This is, you know, let's I'm going to create a new rural broadband program. There's some things that are already working, and I would say time is of the essence, and I, I think that it's important to look at some of the existing programs we have, like the Universal Service Fund. Um, you know, it's been reformed, but it needs to continue to be formed so that it becomes more sustainable. Uh, the contribution factor needs to be addressed, but what Universal Service does, everybody's kind of focused on some of these programs now as a big capital program. What universal service does is it actually allows the providers to carry out um, and, and support the operational expenses. It's the affordability program. It's a program that was put in place, you know, and Brian, you and I've worked, you know, the Hill in the 96 Telecommunications Act, where universal service was codified to say that all Americans, regardless of where you live, should have access to comparable and affordable communication service. And that is the heart and the soul of the universal service program. So I, I do worry a little bit that it has gotten kind of caught up in becoming another grant program. Um, but I do think it's important to continue to think about how that program makes broadband affordable for so many of these hard to reach areas where you frankly just cannot make a business case for maintaining a network out there. I also think the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund I think the intent was very good. And I will say I was probably very excited about the program in the early stages. 
I am a little bit concerned now um, and am hopeful that the winning bidders, you know, will be able to keep the promises that they've made. And we are certainly working with the FCC to encourage greater transparency as they review the long form applications. I think the other thing we know is there are people who are waiting for broadband now who needed it yesterday. And what I worry about some of these programs is that if they are not stood upright and if carriers cannot live up to their obligations, we're going to be back at this in three years for the same consumers who will still be unserved. And I I frankly think we don't have time for that as a country. So again, um, it's, um, you know, some important programs out there. And, uh, you know, my preference is to see some of the funneled into some of these programs that are already standing up and doing some of the good work that needs to be done. Uh, that That's an excellent point. And if I can summarize at least one point I think you just made, it's, it's not, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be so concerned with redistributing value in these programs as we are in creating new value. So make sure anybody who is newly eligible, any new approach uh, is additive and, and not dilutive of the great work that's already being done out there, or we're going to end up finding we've, we've overbuilt areas that are already served and we still have pockets of people who don't have service at all. Is that fair? Absolutely. And I think, Brian, you hit a really critical point because, again, regardless of the total uh, amount of dollars that that policymakers may be talking about, we've got to do this right and we've got to do this smart and we've got to do this in a transparent and credible way. And I do think that, um, you know, I, I think the thought of overbuilding existing facilities with that have been built with federal funding, with additional federal funding, um, we need to be really mindful of that. And, um, and, and competition in some of these rural markets isn't, you know, these areas were monopolies for a reason. And if you can only operate and provide affordable service because you have federal support, putting another set of dollars in those areas, while to your point, we still have a lot of folks who are not connected, raises a lot of issues. And it also raises the question, which I think is part of the discussion, is what is broadband? You know, what what is the speeds? Um, you know, and there needs to be some coordination among programs about you know what the table stakes are going to be. But I think we can probably all agree that you know a ten one offering is not something I would be jumping at for my uh, for my home or my business service at at this point in time. Exactly, and and just a, a point of of personal privilege, I would say that one of the things that Nokia has pointed out uh, starting back in December and January was one of the things we're worried about is the change to the federal workforce that happened over the course of the last administration. And we did or should have learned some very important lessons, uh, surely with the, the Broadband Technical Opportunities Program as just one example from the Obama administration about overbuilding and not getting perhaps maximum value and coverage and gain out of what we were doing. But a lot of those folks aren't in federal service anymore. Uh, So we're a little concerned at the implementation level. I think that's something that industry has to work very closely um, with the agencies that will get the money and the direction from Congress to make sure that we don't repeat the problems of the past. I completely I, agree. And you know what would be interesting, Brian, is, um, and we, I think we've talked about this uh, in the past as, as industries gather, 
but you've got so many entities that are involved. You know, to your point, you raised it earlier. You've got NTIA, Department of Commerce. You've got um, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, National Economic Council. You've got USDA, which is a very key player in our space. You've now got Treasury and Transportation looking at broadband, um, and you've got the FCC. So, so really putting potentially some effort behind who. Who pulls the gang together to make sure that everybody's kind of rowing the boat in the same direction? Because I think that's part of the opportunity of really maximizing what, no matter what the total will be, limited resources. So um, I, I think it would be it would be worthwhile for the government to actually think about um, creating some formal coordination. Uh, agree a thousand percent. So I promised we would come back to the the myths and misconceptions. Uh, part of the program because I I really think this is this is required uh, reading and understanding for for members of Congress who are thinking about this and who have really really fixed ideas about the capability of rural broadband providers I I often use this quote um, from the great photographer Ansel Adams that he said there's nothing worse than the sharp image of a fuzzy concept uh, there are a lot of very strongly held views about what your members can and can't do. I, I will tell you from my experience, most of them aren't particularly correct. And we've already touched on it. But let's circle back to that if we can for just one more second, because I want to give you an opportunity um, to talk a little bit more about some of the things that your members might have been asked to do during the pandemic that might even be outside of their their normal uh, mode of business. Um, I can cite, for example, here at Nokia, again, we're not a service provider, we're technologists. We've gotten a lot of inquiries from people about, well, geez, my school district is uncovered. Is there something you can do that's cost effective that might be able to give us at least temporary coverage for the neighborhoods that feed our schools? So I'm just making a guess here that we're not the only ones getting questions, that your members have been approached by people. Um, so are there any innovations? Are there any new ideas or use cases that have been developed, uh, not necessarily just because of the pandemic, but that are emerging uh, that might be working? Can you can you maybe take a minute or two and put some light on those for us? And, oh, and maybe absolutely. if you've learned some do's and don'ts. Well, it's been very exciting watching these guys, um, you know, my companies in action. And in part, again, it goes back to their community based, right? They're there. They live there. People know where they live. Um, and, uh, you know, watching them jump into action with let's talk about schools. Um, you know, we uh, what we found is our folks immediately were working with their schools because they have those relationships. We also formed a relationship um, with Digital Bridge and um, helped do some coordination. But for example, um, up in North Dakota, when uh, pandemic hit and school children went home, we had the state education office reached out immediately to our statewide in North Dakota, which has all of, you know, my, my carriers provide coverage about 90% of the state and said, all right, we got to find these school kids. Who's, who does not have connectivity at home? Who doesn't have it because they have no connection? Who doesn't have it because they can't afford it? So the coordination, the, um, the, the working together was amazing. And within just a couple of weeks, 99.8% of rural students in North Dakota now have internet access. They had it within, you know, just weeks because the carriers were able to kind of pivot and and uh, find the kids, hook them up. We've had carriers who have done broadband in a box to homes and to schools. I have had some of my companies who have taken their fiber that they have, you know, 
driven and serve the schools to the students' homes. Um, Hotspots, while I tend to think they are more of a Band-Aid in an emergency, every single one of my providers was um, dropping off hotspots, creating hotspot, um, figuring out where their college students were coming back, you know, not just their elementary school and high school students. So I, I think that level of innovation has been huge. And again, part of it is it's necessity, right? You've got to kind of figure out how to move and you move. Um, you know, we've also found operationally, our guys learned some things. I've had carriers tell me up in South Dakota, you know what, there's no reason for our techs to come in every morning and gather in the break room. They now prepare on their own safely and socially distance, gather their stuff and head out from wherever they, they may live in remote South Dakota. So we're seeing it both in a service perspective, as well as an operational efficiency perspective. Um, you know, things that a crisis will will actually kind of force us to do. So Shirley, I couldn't agree with you more. And actually, as I was listening to you talk about that, one of the things that, that came across to me again as a former uh, congressional staffer is that, that oftentimes policymakers in Washington are inside a bit of a bubble in terms of the information they get is the information that's delivered to them. And one of the things that I've seen during the pandemic that has been most surprising to me is the level of detail and information that communities and institutions and communities here, you're talking about your carriers, um, I've referred to school districts and others, the amount of information they have on the connectivity and needs of their, uh, their, their citizens and their neighbors is really profound. And in a world where we have really bad information, quite frankly, on broadband mapping, etc. It would behoove policymakers to listen to the voices of your members and some of these institutions that have been shining so brightly in the pandemic to deliver amazing solutions. Because I feel like there are a lot of lessons learned here that could inform future broadband policy. I assume you'd agree with that. Oh, absolutely. And I will say we just recently hosted our virtual fly-in and held well over 100 individual meetings with members of Congress. I've never seen members of Congress so attentive and interested in actually what is working and what is needed. So that's that's gratifying, and um, I, I think they've seen some good lessons on the ground. I got one more question for you, and this is a little bit of a selfish one for, for Nokia, but uh, we've been looking at the broader picture here beyond just the question of broadband funding. If indeed we're going to have a massive infrastructure bill, I think as I look back at the the one that was talked about in the last administration, I joked to my staff that it was my grandfather's infrastructure bill because it had a lot of things that you would expect to see, you know, dirt turning, shovel ready, things like new bridges, new tunnels, but there really wasn't a whole lot of smart policy in it. And by smart policy, I'm talking about trying to future-proof. We're hearing that future-proof thing in the context of, well, let's set certain speeds and capabilities before we'll fund the broadband. But it's really about more than that. It's about doing things that make it easier to deploy, in our view. So the example everybody thinks of is dig once, where if you're going to lay federal highway, you should put conduit for fiber pull through. So you don't have to tear up a whole highway uh, in order to put fiber down. And that makes sense. But we're also talking about things like ensuring that uh, if it's practical to do so, make sure you're putting attachment points on on new funded infrastructure so that we can later come back and and put uh, uh, communications equipment in those places. Gives us more options, can potentially lower costs. So 
that's what we've been talking about. I, I got to believe there are things that your members have thought about that as policy levers go might make it a little bit easier for them to deploy broadband. Um, if we're given that message to the Biden administration and to Congress on what besides money will make it easier to deploy broadband, what are your thoughts? Well, of course, we do like to start off with money because that is key. Um, but um, but I do agree. And I do. I, I think I would take the the at the 10,000 foot level, I would say we need to think about aiming high. I think this is a moment in time for us to think about the entire picture. So, yep, you've got the capital piece. But to your point, it's how do you do things wisely? And I think there's a couple of things from our perspective that make sense. Um, you referenced already the conduits. Absolutely. Um, you know, how do we think wisely about making it easier to put this, broad, you know, particularly fiber um, into the ground and, and to utilize it in ways that we haven't even thought of. But we also find that there are barriers that you'd be surprised about, um, whether it is um, railroad crossings. This may sound silly and it may sound trivial, but I will tell you, um, railroad crossings are a private uh, transaction the cost to actually be able to bore underneath a railroad in these rural areas where as you drive through rural America, you see a lot of railroads, um, is terribly expensive and cumbersome. Um, you know, what can we do in terms of rights of way? What can we do in terms of crossing infrastructure across federal lands? How do we make those processes easier, smoother, um, fewer obstacles? What about pole attachments? How do you make sure um, that we're able to, you know, if you're if you're willing to fund it, that we're knocking down some of these other obstacles that truly are barriers. And, you know, I think particularly, you know, as we go forward, we've got to be thinking about this as builds with every tool in the toolbox. I think mobility is going to be key. I think fixed infrastructure is going to be key. How they interplay with one another is going to be really important. Um, and, and, and then start being able to think about how do we ride those applications on top of that? You know, what does it mean if we're able to um, knock down some of these other barriers and have federal agencies coordinate with one another, start running some shot clocks so that carriers are not waiting a year um, to get approval for some of these deployments and getting backed up further on supply chain issues, um, will simply allow us to get to where we need to be as a country sooner. Well, here, here, Shirley, I agree with all of those things. And thank you very much. It looks like we're at the end of our time for a, a tantalizing discussion. Uh, I knew we, we picked the right expert to come on and talk about this. And, and thank you to your members for all the exceptional work they've done and that they're going to continue to do in connecting uh, our fellow citizens. It's been a delight to have you. Thank you. Brian, thank you and the Nokia team. We are looking forward to working together because I think technology and infrastructure go hand in hand. And I, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities in the days ahead. Well, thank you again. And thank you to all of the listeners at Nokia today. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Brian, for, for moderating today's conversation and for Shirley Bloomfield for joining us here on Nokia today. We appreciate it again very, very much. And listeners out there, thank you for joining us for this episode of Nokia today. We appreciate it. As always, make sure you go subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to stay up to date with the latest episodes and insights and expertise similar to what you heard here on the podcast today. And stay tuned for more episodes coming out very soon. But until then, for my guest, Shirley Bloomfield, and for our moderator, Brian Hendricks, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks so much for listening. 